Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let's run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of, your sh- of you shedding your blood and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God's treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance right as the eldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Thanks, Dan. Uh, When I was in high school, I played football like every good American kid. And um, I remember in particular one training camp before uh, my 12th grade year. It was during that summer. And uh, we would either go through team workouts or individual drills for about two hours. And then uh, the coach would tack something on the end that he was especially proud of. And he would call it the fourth quarter. Uh, See, football, or as y'all call it, gridiron, it's separated into uh, four quarters of 15 minutes. And my coach, he wanted to base his philosophy on that fourth quarter. What he wanted from us is he wanted us to get on the field in the fourth quarter and have the freshness that we had when we stepped on the field the first quarter. Uh, so these, these little workouts uh, would be significantly trying. He really focused them to, to push our limits. Um, so I remember one day in particular, it was... Uh, Middle of the summer, it was about 35 degrees. It's getting pretty hot on the field, and we were in what was called shells, and that is the shoulder pads that you see him wear, and, and helmets, and then shorts. 
so you could still have some mobility. So we weren't tackling or anything like that, but we were getting pretty hot in all this gear. And uh, we went through about two and a half hours of training, and then Coach blew his whistle. Looked over at him, and he had a bit of a sadistic grin on his face, and he started telling us what the fourth quarter was going to be today. And today it was gassers, and gassers were sprints across the field, and 15 of them, and they all had to be under a certain amount of time. And if they weren't under that time, the whole team had to start all over. So it was uh, quite a bit of pressure. So we're running. We get through about five of them, six of them, and I start, I start feeling something inside me. <laughs> what is that? Something starts percolating in me. You know when you work out too hard and maybe you didn't eat right right before you worked out? Get that feeling in your stomach. And I remember that I had nachos for lunch that day. <laughs> I'll spare you the details and say that I wasn't quite prepared for that fourth quarter. And uh, my face mask was a bit dirty. needed a bit of cleaning afterwards. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> See, this fourth quarter, it's going to come for all of us in life. Some of us, you might, be, you might be in the fourth quarter today, as you come here today. You may have gone through two, three, or maybe even four fourth quarters in your life up till now. Because it doesn't simply come once, it happens again and again and again, life is this multitude of challenges. But then there's this ultimate fourth quarter. And the question is, how are we going to fare when that comes? You know, who's going to have the conditioning? Who's going to have the state to make it through that fourth quarter? How are we going to respond when the, when the little fourth quarters come, when these small things creep into our life? These things that would seek to undermine the journey that God has us on, that would seek to weigh us down. Maybe it's debt. Maybe it is questions of the authenticity of your faith. Maybe it's busyness. Just get caught up in the affairs of life. It could be ridicule from your family or your friends for the beliefs that you hold. Be self-doubt or self-deception, pride, self-sufficiency. These are all things that could keep us from being able to endure in the fourth quarter because they're weighing us down. See, Hebrews, when you read through it, is written to people who had seen some people walk in truth. They'd seen people walk in the experience of the Holy Spirit. If you read chapter 6 of Hebrews, it shows us that they'd seen these people who had a deep conviction of Christianity. But then somehow they fell away from the community of faith. It's a mystery. How can such deep conviction of truth, how can such apparent experience of the Holy Spirit, how can that result in agnosticism, apathy, or outright atheism? And this is something that still happens today. People who journey with us in the church. But in the midst of it all, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, wants to give us some encouragements. Because the question is, how can we endure? We're not focusing on those who don't endure. We're, we're seeing what gives us courage to endure. And what attitudes and practices will help us endure. And conversely, which attitudes and practices might keep us from enduring. So let's begin in chapter 11. I want to get a little bit of flow 
as we come into chapter 12. In verse 13 through 16, we'll start there. It said, speaking of specific people who walked in faith and didn't receive what they promised, but they endured to the end, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Then I'll jump down to verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is the first thing that we come in contact with in Hebrews, that we are not alone in this, that we are not the first ones to go through these problems and through these struggles. In our society, we're individualists. We pride ourselves in our personal achievements. We focus that maybe we're on a person, we're a person on a journey of self-discovery or self-improvements, and we isolate ourselves. We start to say, I'm the only one with this problem. See, no one could understand how I feel because I'm the only one that feels this way. And we say, if only someone could just understand me, I'm alone in this. We say all of these things, and these thoughts, they they come in, and we become vulnerable. And we become vulnerable to the enemy. We become vulnerable to our flesh and to the devil. Because it's like, yes, that's what I want you to think. You are alone. You're all by yourself. Yep. He says, there may be plenty of fish in the sea, but you are in the desert, landlocked in Africa. You are are alone. And how similar does this sound? A man once said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel, they've forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. That was Elijah in 1 Kings. We say similar things. God, I I serve you so well. I'm on fire for you. And no one else here understands that. They're just going about their daily lives. They don't understand the struggles that I go through. They can't possibly. And they're rejecting me. See, when we isolate ourselves, these discouragements, they come running. They're right there, and discouragement literally means to take away your courage. But Hebrews, it yells to us in our isolation. Others have experienced this and endured. They've struggled the same way. They fought the same doubts that you experience. They had the same fears 
gripped their heart. And they held on to that same hope that we have today. And they may not have known it at the time, but their struggles, those struggles, they acted as a way to pass the legacy of faith on to us into the future. See, we have them here. So many rich stories of people just like you and I who fought the fight of faith and endured. We have them in biographies, if you like to read. You might not like to read, so I understand that as well. But it honors their sacrifice, and it's not as some superhuman that is above us, but it is as a person just like you and I who died in faith looking to a heavenly city. But there's more. There's another thing that we have, and we have each other. I find that we often, we look to our own church bodies sometimes with indifference, and it's not intentional sometimes. It's just the way it is. We, we look at each other, and we're like, yeah, we gather here on Sundays, and, uh, you know, it's good to have some friends. And sometimes when that happens, do we fail to see the courage that we could gain from one another? You see, if we don't bring our struggles into the church, if we don't bring our hurts and our pains, we're not going to benefit from the community that the church offers. If we have all these walls that protect us when we come in amongst each other, what sort of healing is going to happen? You know, if we don't speak to people about the deep things in our hearts, the, the things that really motivate us and really push us, not the things that should motivate us as Christians, but the things that do, the things that are right inside your heart that define who you are, if we don't talk about those wounds, the doubts, the brokenness, if we don't bring that to each other, we won't fully experience the healing of the kingdom of God, the grace that is available to us. You see, I think this church here at the branch, you guys and gals, you do, you do aspects of this very, very well. And I've noticed that while I've been here the last two and a half years. I mean, there were times when I was on the edge of my faith. I really was. And coming in here was very difficult for me. But in the midst of it all, you, you welcomed me in. You know, you may not have known it at the time, but you spoke words to me. You gave me courage. You took me into your homes and you gave me courage. You know, it's that simple acknowledgement sometimes of people and their existence that will give them courage. And this is what I think you guys can continue to do well. You can grow to show people in our midst that this is a community that is something greater than a social gathering that will happen out there. It's a community that's empowered by something greater, something that this world doesn't know, and that's the Holy Spirit of God. See, we can, with our community, we can show that there is an inclusive nature to our faith that is offered nowhere else. You can't find it anywhere else. I think the branch, you guys, this is one of your strengths. And it's especially crucial in our time of social alienation. I mean, people, they're reaching out. They, they want to belong. And sometimes the people, they've kind of forgotten how to belong. They've forgotten to belong, how to belong in a community. They don't, they don't know how. You know, if we, don't, if we don't take the initiative, if we don't step out and we reach out to those people when they come in, us, in, in amongst us, they're not going to take that initiative themselves. Because we have a strength in that community. You know, if they do come in the door, 
that's our chance. And if we don't make a move, they could be gone. And I think God has called us to that. God has called the branch to that, to be a strong community that is inclusive, a strong community that can show that we're in something together and that we're traveling towards something together. So as Paul says in Galatians, I pray that you don't weary in in doing good, that you continue to grow in this. And by the grace of God, I think you will. So we have these three things in Hebrews. We have those who have gone before us. We have those who are going with us now. And we also have the prospect of those who will go in the future because our faith extends into the future. We're passing the legacy into the future. So this can give us courage to drop the weight that holds us down. We can drop our hurts. We can drop our struggles and our fears. And we can look to each other to help condition ourselves to make it through the fourth quarters. This is a gift of grace that we have. But there's something even better that Hebrews gets to. The writer says, look to the king. The writer says, look to Jesus. I wonder, is it possible that we don't give this the significance it deserves? I know I don't sometimes. Or maybe on the other hand, it's we don't really understand how to practically do this. And that's understandable as well. It's a bit abstract at first. Look to Jesus. Okay. Or maybe you're not even convinced that we should look to Jesus. Maybe you're like, okay, man, this guy, yeah, according to our faith, rose again 2,000 years ago, but I'm not convinced that he's doing something for me now. So why do we look to him? Hebrews says that he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. So that's one reason we look to him. We look to him because he is the ruler. He is the leader. He is the author and he is the king. So everything in our faith, everything in the world is centered around Jesus Christ. And therefore our faith finds its center in him. So when things come our way that are difficult, when weights come our way that are difficult, we need to look to him first because this faith is his. He established it and he perfected it and he will perfect it in you. For instance, if, if I'm going to learn how to bake, I'm a terrible baker. If I'm going to learn how to bake, I'm not going to ask Carl. <laughs> I mean, that's not an insult to you. You might be a closet baker. I don't know. <laughs> That'd be good for you. But I'm not going to go to him. I'm going to track down the people that bring in all these delicious cakes and cookies for us to eat after, after the service during morning tea. And I'm going to take some notes from them. Better yet, if I could find the personal memoirs of the inventor of cake, if there was such a person, that would be my resource. See, we look to Jesus because he owns the rights to our faith, because this faith is established in him. He's the chief baker, if you will. Poor analogy, but he is. Okay. We look to him because he endured the greatest suffering known to man, and he showed us the key to doing it. We see in verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, the single most horrific act in history is when man killed God. There was nothing in him that deserved that punishment. And he knew it. He knew he was guiltless. In 
and yet he faced it. And he didn't only face it stoically or emotionlessly, he faced it with joy in the midst of suffering. Now, if you remember the story of Jesus, before he went to the cross, he wasn't a happy-go-lucky guy. He was in such anguish that he was crying tears of blood before his father. And yet, when you look at that picture, you start to think that the writer of Hebrews has the audacity to say that he faced it with joy. Can we look at a man who's desperately crying tears of blood, something that I don't think any of us have experienced? Can we look at that and can we say, that is a joyful man. I want to be like that man. It's counterintuitive. There's a bit of a paradox going on here. But he faced it with joy because he had this unshakable hope. He knew God's eternal plan. And he knew that through suffering, the glory of God explodes on the scene. And that gave him joy. As difficult and counterintuitive as that sounds. See, Jesus, he caught a glimpse of something greater. All of these people in chapter 11, they caught a glimpse of something greater as well. Enduring till the end is not about killing your passion. It's not about becoming emotionless. It's not about protecting yourself for times of suffering. It's not about becoming stoic and uninvolved and hard. It's about the opposite. It's about embracing the depths of your desire. It's about operating from a place of extreme passion and desire. In his book, The Journey of Desire by John Eldridge, he says about Jesus, the joy set before him enabled Jesus to endure the agony of the cross. In other words, his profound desire for something greater sustained him at the moment of his deepest trial. His deep-seated desire is what sustained him, not his ability to flip a switch and say, I don't feel things anymore. So it leads us to question, what are, what are the depths of our desires consumed with? When you get down to it, what is at the core of your desires? We'll get to that. We also look to him because he uses this highest authority to support us. It says that after, let's see, we'll go back to verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He has the highest authority over all of creation now. And he uses it to support us. This is perhaps the most uncharacteristic thing for a human to do. And it really shows his divinity. I mean, imagine for a moment, just come with me on this thought process. Maybe you can. I don't know if you can. It's going to be a little rough. But imagine that you elect a politician. And that politician actually uses their authority to support you. They actually unbiasedly, or I mean just completely, support you. I mean, that's really outside the realm of possibility, and yet that's what Jesus is doing. In Hebrews 7.25, the author talks about a reality that is happening as we speak. It says, Consequently, 
Jesus is able to save to the uttermost completely at all times those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is what's going on in heaven right now. Because as a Christian, we don't draw near to God once and say, okay, I'm good. He made intercession for me and I'm good. No, we rely on God all of the time. We draw near again and again and again to God for our life source. And what Jesus is doing is he is he's speaking to God on our behalf. His sacrifice enables him to speak to God on our behalf to make our requests known to God, and then he calls down that divine power of the Holy Spirit on us so we can join in the divine nature, as 1 Peter talks about. He lives for that action. He lives to use his highest authority to sustain us. But how? Okay, so we've got those three reasons. We see that he found and imperfected our faith. You know, he's got the rights. We see that he learned and he knew how to endure the greatest suffering known to man. And we also see that he uses his highest authority to support us. But how do we look to him? I mean, that's the key when it comes down to it, right? You know, we get all of this right information on our head, but how do we actually live what the Bible talks about? Those are some great reasons. I mean, it makes sense to look to Christ if we want to endure. And you may say, well, I mean, he's not visible Looking to him, that's an abstract concept. Go talk to philosophers. I mean, growing up, if we had a father, we could, we could look to him when we were afraid. And something happened. He protected us. But Jesus, I mean, he's not visibly here. How can I look to him? And often, when I see that he's not visibly here, it can make me doubt that he actually is here. All right, Jesus, make yourself known. Show me. Show me that you're here. See, there are two gifts that help us with this. There are two gifts of grace that help us with this. The first is this book right here. We can begin by valuing this because when we read this, we see his life on the pages. We see Jesus as he acted on the pages of Scripture. We see him love people. In ways that we couldn't love people. We just simply couldn't love them. We don't have that power in us. We see him minister, such as when he washes the feet of Judas, the man who will betray him, the night that Judas will betray him. Like, we see that, and it challenges us to look beyond ourselves when we feel betrayed. We see him live in humility, and we see him in submission to his father when he's in his darkest hour. So we can value it by reading it. We can, we can value it by thinking about it. If you don't particularly like reading for hours, read a short bit and, and think about it. You know, let it run through your mind. We're all thinkers. We all like to think. Uh, we can value by listening to it. There's many great options. Audio Bibles. Many great options. We can also value it by meditating on it. Because meditation, in, in Jewish thought, it was, it was inward action. It wasn't passive. It was actually something that was occurring inside the man when they meditated. That's when you read in the Psalms, all the psalmists talk about meditating on God's word. They were, they were acting inwardly, knowing that inward action leads to outward action and outward change. The heart is the issue. 
not our activities. The heart is the issue, so we can value by meditating it. So, for instance, if your mind, if it thinks pragmatically, my mind often thinks pragmatically, and it shouldn't, I'm not saying that it should solely think pragmatically, but if it does, time spent reading or thinking about the word is, is never time wasted, never wasting time. It's always invested. And on the other hand, when we think relationally, this investment that we're making is never just simply geared towards vain self-improvement. It's not the purpose. It's not the purpose to become you know, better moral people. It's about becoming like the person we love most as Christians. That's Jesus. So at its best, when we thirst for the word, we can know we're looking to Jesus at its best. And at its toughest, because those moments come too. When we look to the word, when we're not thirsting for it, we know that we're looking to Jesus. But we also see another thing about Jesus that is our second gift. It's that he is intuitively and he is spiritually connecting with God. Yes, he studied the scriptures and he went and debated when he was a child with the the scribes in the temple. But when we read the gospels, he retreated for prayer. And he spent time alone just conversing with God, discerning God's will. And that's the second gift we have. Jesus said in John 14, in John 14, the disciples are getting a bit bit whipped up into a frenzy. They're like, oh no, Jesus is saying he's going to leave. And then Jesus says, well, you'll know how to, you know, get to me. You'll know where, you know, you'll know where I am. And, and they're like, well, no, because you haven't told us. <laughs> like, I mean, if we put ourselves in the disciples' shoes, this is another moment where we're scratching our heads again. We're like, what is Jesus saying? So then Jesus, in his normal state, says another challenging thing that would take a while for the disciples to understand. He says, when I go, I will not leave you as orphans. The world may not see me, but you will. I mean, if I'm one of the disciples, that's where I'm just like, oh, wait a second, what? (laughs) And he goes on and he says, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, here it goes, and manifest myself to him. And show myself to him. See, it's been said that Christian, the Christian experience at its best, at its best again, is always a felt faith. There's always a, a spiritual vibrancy, an intuitive nature that's going on because we actually have the spirit of Jesus living in us. That's not some pretty little doctrine. It's a reality. Now, it doesn't always mean it, though. That's at its best. It doesn't always mean that we'll, we'll feel Jesus with us. But it does mean this, that if we go through life, if we go through life in the church and, and we never experience the reality of Jesus manifesting himself to you, you may have to search yourself. You may have to check and see. Are we truly looking to Christ? Am I truly in love with Christ? So we have those two ways that we can look to him. We can look to him by seeing him in the scriptures and by thirsting or even just looking. And we can look to him because 
we spiritually and intuitively connect with him. So what things can we expect to change when we look to him? C.S. Lewis is known for saying, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for this present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Our perspective changes when we look to Jesus. When he went to the cross, he was able to have an eternal mindset in his greatest suffering because he practiced an eternal mindset in the small things. He didn't allow the weights and the sin of life to hold him down. He didn't allow small things in life to get in the way of making through this moment and keeping him prepared for it. And these can be good things. These are often good things that hold us down. It's, it's the good pleasures of God that usually get in the way as Christians that can sneak in and set themselves up as idols opposing God, that start grasping for our deepest satisfaction. You know, it's, it's family, it's food, it's hobbies, it's anything that draws us away from eternal realities. You know, thinking about the next world, it's not, it's not escapism, but it gives weight to what we do today. It gives weight to my acts of love. It gives weight to my acts of self-denial when I say, no, this is coming between me and Christ. And along the way, it can foster a heart that can endure suffering when it comes. Blaise Pascal said in his work, The Pensies, our imagination so powerfully magnifies time by continual reflections upon it and so diminishes eternity. For want of reflection that we make nothing of eternity and an eternity of nothing. What is your mind consumed with? What are your thoughts set upon? Because we construct our realities in our minds. And when our minds are never focused on eternal realities, we're not looking to Jesus. What we dwell upon and what we reflect upon creates the reality that we give significance to. The second thing that changes is it changes how we view suffering. And this is perhaps the most difficult thing, really. Because this reaches and this touches down the deepest part of our emotion. It's suffering. I mean, Paul, well acquainted with suffering. And yet he calls suffering in his life light and momentary affliction a man who is beaten, who is stoned, who is left for dead often, calls that light and momentary affliction? Once again, this is wrapping our minds in circles when we try to actually believe what it says. When Christ faces suffering, faced it with joy because he looked into an eternal perspective. And I would suggest that one of the graces of salvation is a renewed mind that can be set on things above. It's a grace given to us, the renewed mind. Man in his natural state, he's not going to look into eternal realities, one, because he probably doesn't even believe in it. But when we have the grace of God transform our lives, our minds get that capability. Eternal hope changes things. C.S. Lewis said, we can only hope for what we desire. 
So we can often find those desires by seeing what our hopes are, by evaluating our hopes. I mean, I do hope to have a Mustang at one point in my life. I mean, it's not a bad thing. That means I desire the Mustang. But if I construct my reality around that Mustang, what am I going to become? Be a workaholic. I have to work a lot to get a Mustang. I become a materialist. I also have a pride of life in possessions. See, this exposes our idols when we look at our hopes. It exposes potential idols, too, because it's not all wrong to hope. Jesus showed that his desire was for God. His desire was for the eternal power and salvation that God was working out through his sacrifice on the cross. He showed that that was his deepest desire because he was able to go through that suffering with joy. See, this true and solid hope, it exposed what suffering really is. It showed that suffering in itself, it's not the end. It's a means to an end. And if you believe in Jesus today, if you are a Christ follower today, you have a huge benefit that the world cannot know when it comes to suffering. A massive benefit. And this is that through Christ, we are made children of God. See, the most troubling thing about suffering, the most confounding and challenging thing about suffering, whether it's a disease, whether it's Ebola in Africa, whether it's cancer in your family, whether it's mental illness, or whether it's financial pressure, or relational breakdowns between husband and wife, or, or parent and child, or the loss of a loved one. The most troubling thing is it's seemingly pointless at first. I mean, that's why the most common question in the face of suffering is why? Why me? Even Christians will ask us, if you read through the Bible, why me, God? Why? See, it, it seems pointless. You know, I've, in my life, I've, I've suffered from waves of uh, sporadic depression for a few years now. And the most troubling thing is when I was asking why over and over again. I mean, I could experience, and I do experience, stability for some time, but the pattern, it always brings back these massive dots of lows and despair that has me think of suicide sometimes. And I ask, why, God? Why is this suffering put on my life? I don't want it. And I realize I'm broken. And I'm weak and, and something's not right about me and I can't fix it. But then Hebrews 12 gives us one of the greatest comforts we can know in the face of suffering. That it's purposeful, that it's not pointless when you have Christ. That it's sanctifying, that it is not useless when God is your father. It has intent. See, God can take the evil and brokenness and make good fruit. It says he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. His discipline on our lives 
It's not punishment for our sin. That was on Jesus. Jesus took it all. I mean, I couldn't pay for it. You couldn't pay for it. Us as a collective group couldn't even pay for one of our sins. But his discipline is the suffering we go through life. And what it does is it makes us more like God. It makes us need God more. It draws us further into the divine nature that's available for us. And at the same time, there's a recognition that it doesn't make it any easier. doesn't make the trials any softer. doesn't make your suffering any less painful. Hebrews says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's the case. But after it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, there is a yield in the end. There is a good, beautiful yield. You don't know when it'll come. I mean, you don't even... You don't even know if it's going to come in this life. You don't even know if you'll experience something that's so great that you could say, man, God, I am so glad you gave me that suffering. But you have the promise, if you believe God, that it will come. Whether in this life or the next. You have the promise that he's a father who loves you and when suffering comes into your life, it's his way of rearranging things to bring you closer to him, to make you more like him. See, the world without Christ, they don't, they don't know this grace. They can't know this grace. They suffer, and then they die, and then they meet more suffering, and nothing changes. But there's something in the community of Christ that is different. You know, we suffer, and that brings us more and more into godliness. And then we die and are made whole on the other side. And that is why we should be so excited to tell people about what our community is. That's why we should be so excited to tell people about what the Spirit of God does, that in the face of their sufferings, they can know that it's not pointless, that it's not just going to end there. But they have a Father who loves them and is drawing them to himself. See, in this in the face of ultimate pain can give us a chance to have the courage to lift our drooping hands and to strengthen our weak knees. We know that by the grace of God we will make it through the fourth quarters. That God has given us all the instruments of grace that we need to make it through the fourth quarters. He tells us here. And that we can lay hold of these gifts because we have a renewed mind that wants them. We can embrace the pain and grief knowing that, knowing that through them we have a father and that father brings healing to us that greatly outweighs the suffering and it will come one day. And that on the other side of the fourth quarter, by God's grace when we endure, we will see God. Let's pray. Father, we are often so broken and weak. 
We can deceive ourselves sometimes, but we are. We're in such great need of your love, and we thank you so much that you lavish it upon us. Father, train our hearts to grab hold of these gifts of grace that we have that can help us endure. And through them, draw our hearts more and more to desire you and your nature. Thank you for your grace and your mercy on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.